A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's, uh, as soon as I get set up, let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity you have given us to gather together, to come before you not as strangers, but as your people, as your children. And God, we thank you for the gift of getting to hear from you, from your word. So God, we ask that you'd please be with us as we engage with this text. Um, Lord, teach us, help us, enable us, God, by your spirit to behold Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's in his great name we pray, amen. Well, for a while in our household, Band-Aids were a very big deal. Both of our kids thought that Band-Aids were just the coolest, to the point where last Christmas Oliver asked for his very own box of Band-Aids. And I don't know why our kids were, were so into them, but we got to a point where every day our kids wanted, both of them wanted to decorate themselves with Band-Aids. Well, eventually, Katie and I decided that enough was enough. It felt wasteful and unnecessary. So we started limiting the Band-Aid consumption in our home. Um, so when our kids would ask for a Band-Aid, our first question would, be, would, would then be, you know, do you have a boo-boo? And our kids would then begin earnestly searching their bodies. <laughs> and one of them would inevitably find a bruise or something and say, yes, I do. And it's like, that doesn't count. So we had to establish the rule, there are no Band-Aids unless there is blood. Well, this ended up creating this weird like Pavlovian response where our kids would get excited about bleeding because bleeding meant Band-Aids. We're, we're working on this. Um, now, most people don't get excited about the thought of blood. In fact, blood makes a lot of us very uncomfortable. But in our text, in our passage this morning, blood is God's appointed means of protection. We're jumping in here at, at Exodus 12, at the tail end of what's often referred to as the plague narrative, the ten plagues narrative. Our first two verses point to the last of, the, of those ten plagues. And these ten plagues were ten acts of judgment against the Egyptians, and part of what's so interesting and so powerful about the description of these ten plagues is that in the chapters that tell them, there are intentional callbacks to the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. So these ten acts of judgment are in many ways ten acts 
of decreation. And what necessitated this? Sin, evil, injustice, and oppression. God would not stand idly by and watch the good world he made uprooted by sin and evil. He was compelled to act and to act severely. But God, in his grace, provides a way of escape. And he did so through a sacrifice, a sacrifice which points to the ultimate one he planned to make on our behalf. So I want us to begin our time together by first digging into these 10 acts of decreation. All right, so just to get us all up to speed on what is happening in the narrative up to this point, the Israelites are in Egypt. God's people are in Egypt. Initially, their time there was good. They had been led there by one of their own, a man named Joseph, who despite being an Israelite himself, managed to become one of the most powerful people in Egypt. He became second in command. The only person above him was Pharaoh himself. Well, he moved his family into Egypt, and, and they settled there, and God blessed and multiplied them. Well, generations pass. Rulers came and went, and eventually a Pharaoh, which is what Egyptians called their kings, a Pharaoh comes to power who did not remember Joseph, and he did not look favorably on the Israelites. In fact, he saw them as a threat, and he made three attempts to break them. First, he subjected them to harsh labor, to slavery, but that plan backfired, as Exodus 1.12 tells us. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. He then tries to convince two righteous women, midwives by the name of Shifra and Pua, to kill Hebrew boys that they helped deliver. But this plan didn't work, as we read in Exodus 1.17. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Well, Pharaoh's last attempt to snuff out the Israelites comes in the form of an evil edict. In Genesis, or excuse me, in Exodus 1.22, we read, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. But ironically, this edict brings the man God intends to use, Moses, into Pharaoh's own household. Moses' mother, when he was three months old, creates a little basket. And the, the word that's translated basket is actually the same word used for Noah's ark. So she creates this basket, this little ark, and sends Moses in accordance with this edict that had gone out down the Nile, where Moses is then seen and taken in by Pharaoh's daughter. He is then raised as a son in Pharaoh's household. Well, more years pass, and a new Pharaoh takes the throne, but his attitude towards the people of God hasn't changed. He continues to deal harshly with and oppress the Israelites. And so God calls Moses. He calls to Moses from a burning bush, and he says, I'm going to use you to rescue my people. Well, Moses begrudgingly answers this call, and uh, as we saw last week, he and his brother Aaron came before Pharaoh and they relayed God's command to Pharaoh to let his people go. And as we saw last week, Pharaoh did not respond particularly well to that request. And the key issue, right, the reason 
that Pharaoh failed to respond is seen at the beginning of chapter 5. When Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh, they say this. They say, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And what is Pharaoh's response? But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. See, the key issue The reason for Pharaoh's obedience and the reason he and his predecessor were willing to act with such evil, to perpetrate such injustice, was their refusal to acknowledge God. Instead, they'd set themselves up in the place of God. And one of the basic principles of Egyptian religion was that the king was a god. The 20th century archaeologist and Egyptologist Henry Frankfurt says that in the Egyptian mind, the monarchy was as old as the world, for the creator himself had assumed kingly office on the day of creation. Pharaoh was his descendant and his successor. And you can see Pharaoh's belief in his own divinity in his exchange with Moses and Aaron in chapter 5. Notice in verse 1, when Moses and Aaron are relaying God's command to Pharaoh, see how they frame it. They say, "'Thus says the Lord.'" And throughout the Bible, the word of God is often preceded by this formula, thus says the Lord. This is a way of saying, listen up, because God is speaking. Well, a little bit later, when Pharaoh has something to say, notice how he uh, prefaces his own command. Thus says Pharaoh. I don't know your God, but here I'm standing before you and this is what I have to say, right? It's quite a contrast. And that is the issue at the heart of this conflict. Who gets to be God? And I think deep down we all know that this is one of the key issues, one of the root issues of every human heart. Who gets to be God? Is it me or is it the actual God? And why is that so important? Well, the answer, I think, is, is really helpfully summarized in, in, uh, in the New City Catechism. And if you're not familiar with catechisms, catechisms are tools that the church has used historically to help its people learn theology. So we take scriptural truths and we put them in this question and answer format. So question 16 of the New City Catechism asks, what is sin? And the answer from scripture is this, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law. And what does that result in? Our death and the disintegration of all creation. See, turning away from God, trying to put ourselves in his place, leads to a breakdown in everything. I heard one pastor describe this idea with reference to our solar system. The sun is at the center of our solar system, correct? Correct, correct. We're going to take that for granted. The sun is at the center of our solar system. Things work. Things are in order when other celestial bodies, including the earth, orbit around the sun. Our existence is contingent on our regular and continued orbit. Well, what would happen if one day we decided that we were tired of not being at the center of our solar system? 
If we decided we're just going to stop orbiting, well, what would happen? Death <laughs> and the disintegration of all creation. It doesn't work that way. Well, this is, this is exactly what, what Pharaoh was doing when he was trying to put himself in the place of God. And this death and disintegration, this breakdown, was so evident all around him. Pharaoh had put himself in God's place and things were breaking down. And God had had enough. And he chose to illustrate the effects of what Pharaoh was doing with ten plagues or ten acts of decreation. Whatever it is we choose to call them, these actions of God are designed to break down the created order as a way of communicating this is what you are bringing on yourself when you choose to put yourself in my place. In Genesis 1, God spends seven days creating the world, during which period he speaks ten times to create. Here in Exodus, he speaks and acts ten times to decreate. And all of this was done so that the people, both Israelite and Egyptian, would know that he is the Lord. This phrase is repeated seven times throughout the plague or decreation narrative. In order, the ten acts of decreation are the Nile turned to blood, an infestation of frogs followed by gnats and flies, disease, boils, hail, locusts, unending darkness, and then the death of all firstborns, which is what our text deals with. And you might be wondering, how are these acts of decreation? Well, I want to highlight a few of them and explain why. The first plague in Exodus 7, where God turns the Nile into blood, well, this transformation of the Nile into blood echoes back to Exodus 1 and the innocent blood spilled by Pharaoh of Israelite boys. See, Pharaoh filled the river with dead bodies and now their blood cries out to God. The Nile was everything for Egypt. It was its source of life, the center of its economy. And because of this, the Egyptians saw the Nile as a deity and Pharaoh as the god who controlled it. But the true god's control over the Nile demonstrates his authority over the waters. And you can think back to the language of Genesis 1 where God's spirit is pictured as hovering over the waters. He is able to separate them, do as he willed with them. But in this act of judgment... The water, instead of being a source of life, becomes a place of death. The fish in the Nile all die and the land stinks. Egypt is devastated. But Pharaoh's heart remains unchanged. Then in Exodus 8, the second plague comes. And this time God sends an infestation of frogs. And, and this, the language in Exodus 8 about this plague is full of callbacks to Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1, God brings order to the untamed chaos of creation when he separates land and water, making it possible for humans and animals to dwell. Well, frogs are amphibious creatures dwelling in both land and water, and they're symbolic of this undoing, this, uh, the, the undoing of this ordered creation. God is returning Egypt to a state of disorder and chaos as a judgment for their evil. 
Later, God tells Aaron to strike dirt so that dust rises up and becomes gnats. This is the third plague. And another inverse of the, created, uh, of the creation narrative. In Genesis 2, we're told how humans were brought to life from the dust of the earth. Well, in Exodus 8, God instructs Aaron to strike the dust of the earth. It's the same Hebrew phrase. And now the Egyptians are covered by dust or gnats that represent death and mortality. Similarly, the plague of the flies, which is described just a bit later, inverts God's blessing to humanity. In Genesis 1.28, God calls humans to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, with the fourth plague, the earth is filled with flies who spend a lot of time, if you don't know about flies, on dead things, dead and rotting things. They are now filling God's creation. Moses, as he tells this story in Exodus, depicts each of the nine plagues with language that is straight out of Genesis 1 and 2, making each a demonstration of God's power that alludes to the creation story, inverting those themes to tell a decreation story instead. And every one of these plagues is a slap in the face to some Egyptian deity who supposedly had control over the various forces that God is using to bring judgment. The deity of the Nile, of livestock, of the sun, who is proven impotent when the land is cast into utter darkness in the ninth plague. And you can see this act as an inverse of God's first words of creation, let there be light. No one can stand against Yahweh. And this brings us then to the tenth and final plague. Now, before any of the plagues, God warned Pharaoh that because he was harming his firstborn son, Israel, Pharaoh would face judgment. He issued this warning in Exodus 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God is abundantly clear about the consequences of not listening to him. But despite this clear warning and his demonstration of power throughout the nine plagues, Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. Despite the fact that his world and kingdom are disintegrating around him, he wants to hang on to his own rule, his own sense of divinity. Now, in contrast to Pharaoh's utter lack of mercy in Exodus 1, God provides a way of escape from his judgment. He tells Moses that anyone who listens to his warning and obeys him by sacrificing a lamb and putting the blood on the doorposts of their houses will be spared. This means that salvation wasn't exclusive to the Jews. It was also available to Egyptians, those who were willing to trust in God, who had seen his power manifest and were willing to do what he said, could also be spared. And it appears that there were some who did that. And this might account for what's called the mixed multitude in Exodus 12, 38. All right. So we're at the 10th plague, and I want us to, to dig into this, and specifically the significance of the blood of the Lamb. Now this final plague, like the ones that preceded it, highlight the significance of sin. Now, while we have grown accustomed to sin, we've grown comfortable with it, the reality 
is that sin brings death and that sin requires blood. Now, this is something that, that, that rubs against our modern sensibilities. I think in a lot of ways, this reality, it, it makes us uncomfortable. And many will look at this passage, the one that was read a few minutes ago, and they'll dismiss it as, as primitive, as archaic. We like to think that we have evolved past such ideas. But, but I take issue with that notion on two fronts. Uh, the first is context. I think the idea that sin doesn't require blood, it flourishes in places of relative ease and comfort. There's a theologian at Yale named Miroslav Volf. I think of him just about every time this topic comes up. Uh, He was born in Croatia where he experienced firsthand the violence in the Balkans. There he saw, going on for years and years, this cycle of vengeance violence and retaliation, right? You did this to us, we're going to do this to you and harder. You did this to us, well, we're going to come back at you harder over and over and over again. And he believes that the only way out of this cycle is belief in a God who sees the effects of sin and is willing to act in judgment. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he writes, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Why does the Bible's talk of blood and judgment make us uncomfortable? Well, perhaps it's because we've lived a far more comfortable existence than most people in the world, most people throughout human history. But even in quiet, comfortable places, I take issue with the notion that we've evolved past this idea, this idea that that, uh, sin doesn't require blood, that it doesn't create a a meaningful debt. Uh, I was listening to a podcast this week, uh, is a pop culture podcast, which I appreciate because I like keeping up on pop culture, but I have two small children, and so I don't watch anything anymore. Uh, that, uh, I do watch Daniel Tiger um, and the occasional Cars movie, but apart from that, um, so it, it's a way of, of helping me to stay informed about what's, what's going on without actually, actually having to watch or listen to anything myself. Well, in one of the episodes this week, this podcast talked about a movie that I have absolutely no intention of seeing, um, and it's a, it's a horror movie. I think it just came out, but something that I found interesting in their discussion One of the key plot points of this movie is that there's this group of well-to-do people who've done something horribly wrong, and the whole, seems the whole purpose of the movie is to punish these people, and there's a substitute that stands in for these people, and and these substitutes are treated gruesomely, and it was so strange for me to listen to this podcast and to hear people on it describe with great satisfaction what some of these characters endured. Now, this was an NPR podcast where everyone talks in a very calm and soothing voice, right? (laughs) But even there, these people were excited to describe, to celebrate this movie with its gross depictions of violence because that violence in their minds was coming down on people who deserved it. So much for evolving past this notion that, that sin doesn't require blood. And I think it just goes to show that deep down, even if we explicitly deny it, we know that sin creates a debt. 
that it requires a sacrifice, that it is so serious that blood has to be spilled. And so when God said that he was going to visit the land in judgment, the people are given a choice. The wages of sin is death. Death is required. And so God says that it will either be yours or that of a substitute. The people could be saved by the blood of a lamb. That lamb would provide a covering over the house. The innocence of the lamb would cover over the guilt of the people. This story and the way that it's being told is a callback to the story of Abraham and Isaac. In Genesis 22, God gives Abraham an impossible task. He tells him to take his son, his only son whom he loved, and to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And Abraham is crushed at the request, but he understands what the Bible goes on to say in Numbers 3.13, that all the firstborns belong to God. Because of sin, every life is forfeit. Every life belongs to God. So Abraham obeys. He knows that God is just, but he's also holding on to hope because he knows that God is also gracious and merciful. So while they're on the way, Isaac, being rather perceptive, looks to Abraham and, and he says this. He says, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And that is exactly what happened. Though God had the right to require Isaac's life, as he has the right to require any of ours, he provides a substitute. He stops Abraham from harming Isaac and instead provides a ram caught in a thicket for a sacrifice. Isaac is saved by the blood of a substitute. Here at the Passover, the people are saved by the blood of the Lamb. And all this is meant to point us to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To Jesus, who would offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And what does that communicate to us? It communicates to us the incredible love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Like deep down, I think we all know that the wages of sin is death. We know that something is not right. Something is not right with us. Something is not right with the world. We want a covering. And God, out of his incredible love, gave us his only son, so that we could be, as, first Peter, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 18 and 19, ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without, without blemish or spot. I heard a pastor tell a story recently about a, a woman in his congregation uh, he pastors a church in, in West Palm Beach where people are well-off and comfortable, where image is very important, so nothing like Orange County. Um, well, he said that, that a woman from his church was at a, a gala somewhat recently, 
And there she saw another woman um, who she said was, was really beautiful and very put together. And this woman from, from this pastor's church said that, um, that this woman was wearing this necklace, and on the necklace it had just a bunch of different crosses with different designs and different uh, jewels and, and, and all the things. And so the church woman went up to her and complimented her necklace, and the other woman responded and said thanks and explained that you know, she's not religious or anything, but, but she, she thought that the necklace was beautiful. Well, the church lady agreed that it was, in fact, beautiful and said, um, and I'm a total Jesus freak, so I, I think it's, it's really meaningful too. And the woman wearing the necklace laughed because she thought that she was telling a joke until she realized, oh, she's, she's not joking. Uh, and the Christian woman then went on to, to talk to her about God and, and, and explain to her that she's just blown away every morning with the reality that God actually loves her. Well, the woman with the necklace heard, heard that and said something to the effect of, well, well, that must be nice for you, but God couldn't possibly love me like that. Well, after hearing that, the, the Christian woman responded by saying, honey, he knows every hair on your head. And he loves you enough to have died for you. Well, after hearing that, the the woman wearing the necklace just began to weep. This woman who doubted God's love for her was walking around with the ultimate symbol of God's love for her on her neck. Friends, our our God is, is powerful. He is just. He is not going to sit idly by as sin destroys the good world that he has made. But he is also gracious and forgiving and full of love. And he will save those who call on him. So think, are you tired? Are you hurting? Are you questioning, could God really love me? Well, friends, behold the Lamb of God who has ransomed you with his precious blood. The answer in the gospel is an overwhelming yes. He does, and he has proven it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this morning we thank you for your perfect justice and your perfect love, both of which come together in the person of Jesus. God, we thank you for the reality that you take sin seriously because we have all been affected deeply by it. But God, we are also, at least speaking for myself, we can be intimidated by the reality that you take sin seriously because we are all perpetrators ourselves. But God, we thank you that in Christ you have shown how seriously you take the effects of sin. It was so serious that it required the death of the Son of God. And yet he loved us so deeply that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Lord, help us to believe that. By your Spirit, Lord, may we turn away from the sin that brings death and destruction, that hurts us and the people that we love. 
the sin that hurts you, God. Help us to turn from that. But God, help us to do so with joy and with freedom, knowing that as we take, take baby steps away from sin, away from the things that entangle us, that you are celebrating with us, that we have life and freedom with you that isn't contingent on our ability to turn from sin. God, you give us both the will and the desire and the ability. So Lord, help us to live into the freedom that you provide. Help us to see you as our greatest good. And God, help us to revel in the love of the gospel. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.